Welcome to Room for Growth, a Willow Tree podcast about growth marketing hosted by Billy Lowen and me, Billy Fisher. Whether you're an industry expert or just getting started, there's plenty of room to grow. Share this episode with your favorite coworker, follow us wherever you enjoy podcasts, and reach out if you'd like to join the show. You ready, Billy? I'm ready, Billy. Let's go. Let's f***ing grow. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Room for Growth. You have me, Billy Lowen, and Billy Fisher here with you today. And we have a very fun guest. This is a bit inside baseball today, if I'm being honest. And we are going to shift gears just a little bit from talking about marketing and marketing campaigns. We have been so focused on reviewing Super Bowl ads and lifecycle marketing for Valentine's Day and just sort of best and worst offenders in some of our channel messaging. Today, we're going to shift gears and we're going to talk about what makes a great leader. We're going to talk to one of our favorite leaders and get some of his perspective on how he's grown and changed and evolved over time as he's grown a business from its foundation all the way to now being a publicly traded company as part of the TELUS brand. And that is our own CEO, Tobias Stangle. So we affectionately call Tobias TD internally. He is a man who could come with a heck of an intro because he's had such an interesting life and background. But some things that you should know about him is he's got a 96% approval rating or higher. It might even be at like a 98% on Glassdoor. He has won numerous awards for his leadership of mid-sized businesses and larger, and now taking on, as we mentioned, a new role as a president in a publicly traded company, which is our new parent brand, TELUS. So he's going to talk a little bit about what that growth and transition has been like for him. He's going to talk about some of the secret sauce that makes Willow Tree unique that allows us to deliver projects really differently and create such a strong company culture here that people just flock to and love to be a part of. And then he's going to also just share a little bit about what it was like to choose a new owner for the company that he helped to build from the ground up and uh, what he's looking forward to. Billy, any thoughts there? We've done the interview with, with Tobias as, as we're talking now. And one of the things I was thinking about as we were talking, I've thought about this before, is I need to read more often. I need to I need to stop reading these uh, Oprah Book of the Month Club uh, books that I get into and and brush up on on some his ability to kind of remember uh, and capture these great leadership books that that are are core to how we operate every day. And uh, so excited to to share that some of those. Uh, and a reading list with with our listeners. Yeah, totally. TD is an avid reader. We all fear when he goes on vacation because we know he's going to come back and have read some kind of book with a really great concept in it that we truly do need to adopt, but then all be responsible for figuring out how we bring that change to our company. And I think that that's a nice testament too. Like so many of the things that we do at Willow Tree that are unique or special or very uniquely ours and feel like such a part of our fabric are actually borrowed concepts from research or from other great companies around the world. And so it's such an interesting adoption and identity of these concepts. And definitely internally, every book he's about to mention, you'll kind of just see me like nod along because I have read them all. They they really do become part of our fabric and how we grow together. So if you're an avid reader, he's going to make some recommendations. Uh, it's a great sort of summer reading list. You know, one of the things that, that comes out, I guess it's one of the reasons why these books are so great. And one of the reasons why we respect TD's communication style is the the concepts are pretty straightforward. You know, they're not something, they're not easy. They're not things that we that we do naturally. But when you hear a lot of the concepts that that are presented, it would be hard to disagree. Like, yeah, that no, no way. That's that's not how you run a company or that's not the right approach. They 
are pretty easy, but they're so easy to forget because we all go on autopilot and just constantly are doing, you know, our, what we think is best or what we're, what we're used to. And so good reminders, uh, and this, whether you're the CEO of a company or just joining and just starting your career, I think they're good, good reminders that you can use to guide tomorrow. Yeah. Hopefully all of his advice today feels really applicable, even listening to it. Many of the stories he tells I've heard before, and they were great reminders for me. And without further ado, introducing Tobias Dangle. All right, Tobias, welcome to Room for Growth. You know, we've been doing this podcast for uh, about six months now. Billy and I were talking like, finally, we need to get our esteemed leader. That's one guest that can't say no to us. So uh, we're glad to have you. Glad that we finally got you on the podcast. So welcome. Well, you spent six months getting your ratings up. So now we're going to crater them. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. The reviews and the, the star rating. Get Get ready. Yeah, we have the opportunity to uh, work with you on a regular basis and and be inside the walls of Willow Tree, and so we thought today we'd use this opportunity as a way to to share some of the the secret sauce, some of the mantras, and some of the ways that 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 we go about things here with our listeners. And so we've got a list of questions that Billy and I are just going to blast at you. I wanted to get us started with kind of a bigger question and. When you know you can throw a throw a ball and hit a consulting company out there, there's lots of firms that that do what we do or say they do something similar. But as I've seen firsthand, and, and our clients have, we we do things a little bit differently at Willow Tree, and and have and have gone from a really small organization to a pretty big sized organization just relatively today. And I just wanted to kind of start with that secret sauce and have you do a little commentary on on what do you think. What do you think makes us different? What do you think is part of, of how we deliver and how we go about things that's a little bit different? I'll tell you what I'd like to think. You guys can tell me if it is actually manifesting itself in real life. But you know, when you get started in a small company, it's pretty easy to, to have a certain culture and control it because it's a small group of people. You're usually sitting around every day talking, et cetera. And the challenges really start as you scale. And different definitions of that. But certainly once you get past 25, 30, 40 people, you got to really think about what you stand for as a team and as a culture. And we spent a lot of time studying that and thinking about that. And certainly a part of it is who you bring in, who you let on the boat. That's really, really important. But it's also codifying how we treat each other and, and what it means to be at Willow Tree. And I think we spent a lot of time thinking about human motivation and why we get out of bed in the morning to do what we do and thinking about the fact that as adults, this might seem sad when you think about it in a certain way, but we spend more of our waking hours at work doing our jobs than anything else we do in our lives. So let's make it freaking awesome, right? That was a core belief because we were doing it every day too, right? And I didn't want to be part of a company that wasn't fun for others because it certainly wouldn't be fun for myself then either. And the second piece was really unpacking human motivation and what defines great cultures and how people talk about them and think about it. And it's been studied heavily, right? And I think read a lot of books. One of the most important one was uh, Frederick Lelou's reinventing organizations. 
a lot of what comes out in those books is, and, and the studies that have been done about performant cultures and cultures where, where folks are super engaged, is it's really about two things. It's about autonomy, but still having objectives and kind of combining those two things. And when you give people clear goals, but you also give them a ton of freedom on how to pursue and, and do those goals, you get extraordinarily engaged people that love what they do every day and don't have this psychology that happens as companies get bigger where they got to follow a bunch of rules, right? Because rules generally suck. The reason rules are in place is that something got screwed up along the way. And so people are like, well, we never want that to get screwed up again. So we're going to put a rule in place. And those rules build and build and build. And after a while, you've kind of snuffed out human creativity. And I'd rather fail every now and then because knowing people are trying new things but give them the responsibility and the autonomy to do it as they see fit. And I think that simple concept goes a super, super long way. I think one of the things that's unique about Willow Tree is that our core values are relatively limited. There's not a ton of them. And then our leadership dimensions to add a second depth to this. But we talk about core values every day. We talk about leadership dimensions and what that looks like as just sort of part of our language how we judge the success of projects, how we judge whether we're making progress on many of our initiatives. We, of course, have a lot of like measurable metrics for those things as well. But Willow Tree really embraces its core values and you feel that every day in the culture. We talk a little bit about how our core values were created and what that process was. And then what challenges have you seen in scaling those core values as we become more complex? Virtually every company has core values at this point. And Frankly, I think a lot of them are pretty hollow and I think a lot of them are top down and that the leadership or the board sits around and they're really saying, well, this is how we want everyone to behave and treat each other. We looked at it a little differently when, again, we were scaling. We got to about 200 folks in 2015, 2016, and all of a sudden we started hearing, hey, this place is starting to feel like a big company now. Uh, which is kind of ironic because that was a long time ago. We said, well, why is that, right? What's causing that? And what's the, you know, let's peel back the onion and and figure out what you never want to see change. What's scaring each of us about being bigger? And so we took the whole company out for a day and we just did post-it notes all over the walls saying, this is what I never want to see change at Willow Tree. And then we took those and turned them into seven core values and replayed them to the team and said, is this, is this what we're all thinking? And we iterated a few times and we got it to a point where everyone loved it. And so it was engagement on those core values from day one because everyone was able to contribute. And every two years, we take the core values out and put them out for comment. And they've changed a little bit over time. They've gotten better. They've been tweaked. They've been improved. But the concepts have been you know, surprisingly consistent for the last seven or eight years. And we're about to embark on that again this coming summer in a much bigger company to kind of look at what, what's working core values and, and what's not working. My favorite one that changed it is we used to have one that was just called optimism, and it's now called realistic optimism. So that was a little tweak we made along the way because the team felt we were just asking people to smile no matter what was going on. One of my favorite core values right now that to that point around how do you scale some of these concepts is flow. We have this real belief that you do your best work when you are uninterrupted and you can get at a deep state of sort of your best work for several hours. 
But as we get bigger and we take on more complicated challenges, we've got larger internal teams, we've got more expertise, we've got more leaders, we've got more day-to-day individual contributors. That's one that I think consistently can be threatening client services already because you're a little beholden to client meetings, for instance. But then as complexity grows, it's really easy to disrupt that flow time with like simple problem solving. How are you thinking about our core values as we get larger, as we take on more complicated challenges? Like how do we sort of stay true to some concepts and others evolve to the size that we are? Yeah, so flow is one of my favorite core values for a couple of reasons. One is it's so unique. I've never seen, I'm sure other companies have it, I've just never seen it. And it's so important to us because we're believers in the book, right? If you haven't read the book, it's uh, it was a seminal text in my life and for a lot of us that were here early at this company. And it kind of, you know, they studied happiness over a decade, I think 25,000 people around the world. And they came to the conclusion that human happiness is primarily driven by how much flow you get in a given day, meaning how much time do you have where you're deeply engaged in an activity? Could be a hobby, could be anything, but you're kind of so deeply engaged, you lose track of time, which they called flow. And a lot of people in our jobs get into these jobs, whether it's software development or design or you know anything that we do at Willow Tree, because they get to experience a lot of flow, right? It's, it's joy of doing something important and meaningful and deep. On the other side of the coin, flow is so important because when we get a lot of flow, we're much more productive and we're able to do things at a higher rate and a higher quality than hopefully our competitors and other companies where there's less flow, right? And so that's why it's this amazing duality of flow that's so important, which is why we kind of dived into it. The second thing that we know about flow is when we... Every year we do an engagement survey and everyone rates which of the core values we're doing the best at implementing and maintaining and which is the worst. Flow, as simple as it sounds, is always the lowest rated in terms of are we really living up to our ideals? And it's because of everything you say, Billy, in terms of the complexity, et cetera, and it requires care. It requires care every day to make sure we are getting flow. And I I fail at it many days. Many days I kind of look at my schedule at the end of the day and I was like, I didn't get any flow today. I was like in meetings, in discussions, those are all important. And sometimes you can be in flow in meetings. A lot of time you're not. And so when we can have a culture of flow, things really change. And that means talking about it, teams saying, you know, we're going to block two hours in the morning, two hours in the afternoon for flow and flow time. And we know it's working when our clients start talking about flow time. And one of the kind of early bits of research we did is that in our software developers in the United States are interrupted in their work on average every five minutes by email, Slack, whatever. When they're interrupted, it takes them an average of 20 minutes to get back to where they were at task in hand. So just do that math. When you do that math, people are getting an hour maybe of product, real productive work a day. And kind of our thesis was, hey, if we can get that to be four or five hours, we can kind of run circles around others in terms of velocity. So it's such an important part of it. And my other favorite piece of it is, and this is kind of came from, I don't know what team, one of the teams started, they had flow time, you know, four hours a day, five hours a day, but then they also had wolf time, which is flow spelled backwards, which is when all the, all the slack happens, all the conversations happens. And, you know, it's kind of a a mess. And so, um, 
that's something that kind of has been adopted by a bunch of our teams as well. Love it. So the you know here at Willow Tree we've got words like wolf and flow that that uh, are thrown around all the time. But I remember the the very first day I joined uh, Willow Tree. I heard this acronym and I now hear it every day. I've even found myself using it with my wife in like day-to-day activities and like how we're, how we're like managing our lives. And that's DRI. So tell us more about the kind of the, where that came from and, and why it's so important and the work we do every day. So like a lot of the best things at Willow Tree, DRI is a stolen term. And this one was stolen from Apple. So when we started out, you know, the first year or two, we were really just building apps for the iPhone. And we spent a lot of time studying Apple and saying, how is Apple able to outperform so many of its competitors in terms of innovation, in terms of quality, et cetera, et cetera? Because if you went back, this was like 2010, 11, if you went back five years previous, Apple wasn't at all on the radar as, you know, as going to win the smartphone world, right? You had Motorola, you had Nokia, you had a bunch of devices out there by leading tech firms, BlackBerry, of course, and then all of a sudden, you know, Apple out innovates them, and 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 they they've out innovated all over the place. And you're like, what? What's good? There must be a cultural thing. It can't just be Steve Jobs. And they have a couple very strong cultural norms. So if anyone is listening who's from Apple or was at Apple, they'll instantly recognize this concept, this term of DRI, and it means directly responsible individual. And the thesis was that they had, Steve Jobs had 20, 30 years ago, is that a lot of projects get screwed up at large companies because it's being run by a committee or multiple people and no one knows who's responsible. And there's one person at the end of the day who's responsible for any given task. And we apply it to every, everything. I mean, we apply it to beer kegs on tap and uh, there's a DRI for choosing the beer. And it's just a term that's become part of the culture here. But I think it's a super powerful term because... It gives us a way to talk about a very simple concept, which is at the end of the day, whose job is it to make sure X, Y, Z is getting done. And it can work at home too. And it can work at home. And the funny thing is, is when, you know, whenever we have meetings with Apple and we start using it, they look at us like, what the hell? Like they think they're the only ones using it. So it's a, it's always funny when we're talking to our friends at Apple. Dave, will you talk a little bit about your evolution as a leader? It's really interesting to me that 15 years ago, you founded a small company and you've seen it grow to the point of becoming a part of a publicly traded company. Your role has shifted a lot, the set of responsibilities on your shoulder and just the number of people who are looking to you for vision and direction have changed pretty significantly. What are some of the ways that you've changed as a leader and how to change your approach? What have some of those like sort of phases of life been and what have been some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? You know, I started my career at AT Carney and then was at uh, AOL. And at AOL, I got my first management responsibilities and uh, team. And I, if anyone from that team is listening to me, I'm sorry. I was a terrible freaking boss. I, I did. I made every mistake, right? And I think, you know, you get to be promoted typically in a company because you've been an excellent individual contributor and you become a, you know, a leader of people. No one really trains you, explains you what's going on, and you apply the same kind of approach, which is, you know, managing your time, managing yourself, managing every detail, and you not start doing that to other people, which is the exact opposite of what one should do because now you're micromanaging, you're driving people crazy, you're not giving them any freedom, and uh, I was that in spades, and I think I again apologize to anyone who's listening to work for me. 
in those days. But it was an evolution of learning and it was an evolution of reading. And I became, you know, convinced of, you know, the book I mentioned before, which I probably read in 2013, 2014, and then another one called Team of Teams by Stanley McChrystal that kind of changed my thinking completely in terms of how to manage and switch it completely on its head and instead be very, very hands-off and apply you know, a management by walking around mentality where you just kind of check in, see what's going on, but very little top-down command and control. And frankly, I couldn't do that anyway because I have no idea what 98% of the people at this company do. Like they do things that I have no clue how to do and they do it way better than I could. So even if I wanted to manage them, it'd be a shit show. So I don't, part of it is just the reality of working in tech, but setting goals and um, giving people autonomy was was the real breakthrough for me. And one of the things that I learned along the way, someone sent me this video of a of an analysis that had been done of what drives engagement at large companies. And it was comparing if an employee knows what the mission of the company is and kind of what how they fit into the company, comparing how important that is in terms of engagement versus do they know what their job is and the mission of the team they're in and that they work in every day, how those compare in terms of importance. And it turns out it's much, much more important that a team member is engaged every day at the team level than what the company as a whole. And it, it kind of, when you think about it, it makes a lot of sense, right? Because I can talk till I'm blue in the face about what's great at Willow Tree and what we're doing and why. But if you're on a team that's miserable and you don't like the people you're working with, it doesn't really freaking matter. And so that was another reason I, I kind of shifted my thinking completely to be like, all right, we got to build great teams. We got to allow those teams to have autonomy because that's where the magic happens. It doesn't, you know, we have to support it at a corporate level and we have to permit that culture and set it up. But the day-to-day is where the game's won or lost. So speaking of kind of Billy just referenced it and we, we might as well go there. You know, we don't, we don't talk on the podcast a lot about Willow Tree. Uh, usually we're talking, talking to our guests and, uh, she mentioned a new elevated organization that we have, and we've recently joined the TELUS family as part of TELUS International TI. And so we just wanted to set you up to talk a little bit about what you're most excited about in, in terms of just started in January. So we're still we're still new, but in, in terms of looking forward to the next year, what you're most excited about as part of that new partnership. As a company and as a leadership team of a company, there's no more important decision you make, really than if you're going to be acquired, who that is, right? It, it's exactly analogous to picking a spouse, et cetera. It is a big decision and you're going to be spending lots of time together. And so we took that really seriously. And in our space, there's a lot of acquisitions that go poorly. Like by poorly, you look at the company two years later that was acquired and no one's left anymore. None of the, and the leadership team, a lot of, you know, people are just gone. And you kind of look at why some succeed and some fail. And it comes down to a few different proof points that have to be satisfied for these things to work. The biggest one is you have to have cultural alignment, meaning that the way people work every day in these companies is similar. Their values are similar. So we spend a lot of time with the management team making sure that we are culturally aligned. And one you know, simple piece was they have a massive program 
to give back to their communities around the world where they work and they they call it you know give where you live and we have a similar program right and so there was just alignment on how engaged we are with our communities all around education right and it's it's bringing people into tech is kind of how we look at it on the willow tree side and on the ti side it's it's some in some of the countries they operate in like guatemala and the philippines it's access to, to basic education, they build schools and those kinds of things. So that was a big deal. A similar positioning, right? I always say it. W- it's really hard to merge Chrysler and Mercedes because they mean very different things to the buyer. You know, we are in different service lines, but the business we are in is exactly the same. It's putting premium services in front of our clients, meaning at the end of the day, premium teams. And uh, we are both in the product in the in the business of building great teams. And being differentiated versus our competitors and in, in on the premium side of the business. And then the other piece of it is just a complementary fit. So if you join a large company and they're already doing what you do, but you're just bringing scale, you're going to be in a lot of turf wars, et cetera, et cetera. We were incredibly complementary. There are, you know, they have 600 clients. We have 65 of them overlap. They have 75,000 employees. We had 1,200 none of our team members do the same thing. And so the services are such a natural fit and kind of really complete the picture of what our clients can do with us and what we can do for our clients that it was just it was just a very obvious selection once we started talking to potential acquirers. I know you love to get into a book, live it, read it, apply it. Curious if you would give advice to maybe a mid-level or or a manager in a company who wants to get better at leadership, get better at making an impact on the company that they work in, whether that's Willow Tree or one of our clients. What five books do you think are the most influential that you've read? And then what advice would you give to that manager that they can't read in a book? Wow. Five. All right. So I'm going to start with kind of the <laughs> highest level books and go down to the most specific. So good to great. I think is a seminal text for anyone in business. And I think you can't read that book enough. It's research-based. It basically defines what is the difference between well-run companies and excellently run long-term companies. It's research-based. So that's a great one. I've already mentioned two others, Team of Teams by Stanley McChrystal, Reengineering or Reinventing the Corporation by Frederick Wu. The one I would suggest for a manager for themselves, kind of inwardly looking, like how can I be a better manager is progress principle. We talk about that one all the time. That's you know one that we found incredibly powerful. And then the other one is the seven dysfunctions of a team. So all of those, you, you kind of add them all up together and you get a pretty good recipe of what we're doing here and what we've tried to do at Willow Tree in terms of managing the team. One of the pieces of advice I would give folks that I haven't read very much about is, you know what, I'm, I'm going to add a six book. Can I do that? Yes. <laughs> Violating your norms. You can violate, here. but yes. Crucial conversations. And, you know, having a difficult conversation well is an extraordinarily important and powerful skill. And we don't learn it. Like they never, you're, you're never taught that. And you don't learn it at home because your home is, you know, mostly a command and control environment 
well, in my case, command, command, and, command and no control over their kids, yeah. but in theory, but I'm, I'm not very good at having crucial conversations with them. But it's a really, really important skill. How do you have difficult conversations, but trying to get to a productive place? And you can't, you can't have this concept of ruinous empathy where you're just intimidated by these conversations because mm-hmm. you will not air out things. You'll end up in, in a passively aggressive environment. And so that book is, is just, I think I would put it right next there to progress principle as like, if you want to personally grow two of the most important books. And then I haven't found a great book on this. I, we have a joke around Willow Tree or they have a joke about me when, when I come back from vacation and I have a list of like four ideas. They're like, what books do you read? <laughs> Cause I'll read these books. Now it's like, here's four things we got to change. But I would love to find a great book on corporate level or business communications and precisions in the modern world, right? In a world of text and Slack and email and some and Zoom, just really thinking about how to optimize human communication, because uh, that's where everything breaks down, right? It's usually not that someone is acting badly or that someone is malevolent. It is usually communications underpinned by some level of mistrust or not assuming positive intent necessarily. And communication just goes such a long way in bridging those gaps. Sometimes there are differences of opinion. Sometimes there's a bid and an ask, but let's get to this bid and this ask and then have a conversation. Can we, can we bridge it or not? But getting a lot of that negative emotion out of it in this modern world where a text can so easily be misinterpreted as Slack can be misinterpreted. Mm-hmm. That's just different than it was five or 10 years ago. Cause you used to, you, you say things to people over text and Slack, you'd never in a million years say face to face or in a phone call. And so it's just this like dangerous undercurrent that I don't think a lot of us are conscious enough of. So TD, you know, a lot of our listeners here on the, on the podcast are in the, the marketing industry in some way, maybe a hands-on growth marketer, digital marketer running marketing campaigns and engagement campaigns for their, for their brand, or they are working with clients. So uh, a few years ago, you know, as the leader of our company, uh, we started a growth marketing practice uh, at the time. We were primarily really heavy in the mobile app space, of course, uh, as well as the, the web application space. But Curious, you know, what prompted that? You know, and as the leader of the company, it's an investment to to make strategic hires, partnerships, and and move in a direction. Looking back, what, what was kind of the driver of that decision? It was pretty simple that we were building apps and websites for our clients, and they were not once they got out into the wild, they weren't tied into their marketing campaigns. And so what does that mean? That means if you're a major cinema chain and you've got 10 million folks signed up to your loyalty program and you're sending them a weekly email and say, Hey, if you buy tickets to the next star Wars movie a month ahead in advance, we'll give you a free Coke. And you're sending that by email and 90% of those emails are read on a mobile device and someone taps on that and they have the app downloaded, but it doesn't go to the app or it goes to the app, but it opens up, you know, the homepage of the app. And I mean, we all know, like, do you think you're actually going to hunt down that offer in the app? No. Right. But if you tie it all together 
And in one tap, because you're already authenticated, we know who you are, you've got your payment information in one in one tap, you buy the tickets and select your seats. The conversion rates don't go up by a point or two. They go up by an order of magnitude or more. And you're tying the whole system together. So it actually started with uh, the head, the CMO of a major movie chain coming to us and presenting this problem to us and saying, I got to either fire my marketing agency or I got to fire you guys, but I need one person who's doing all this. So we suggested they fire the marketing agency <laughs> and they let us do the marketing. So that was the start of it all. And um, like all great success stories, it starts with visionaries and leaders. And Billy was the first team member and leads the team. The Billy here, not you're also important, Billy, but Billy Lowen not to be confused is, is yeah. the star of the show here. <laughs> and you know, it was one of those things. And Billy, I love her take on it, but she'd been in marketing, but this was going to be a leap forward. And, and it's the classic, you know, when you find someone and you hire on like vision and potential, et cetera, not on resume, not that it was a problem with the resume, but it just wasn't <laughs> running a division of this yeah. size and building an entire business in two, three years. So it was, um, you know, it's a testament to that kind of philosophy. I was going to say, if you didn't bring up deep linking as the reason why we started an entire growth practice, that was absolutely the impetus for it. So we still do a lot of deep linking today. Yeah. <laughs> we learned a lot about it fast and how to implement those technologies. All right. My last question is always my favorite. We talk a lot about what makes people loyal to different brands, what types of experience build true loyalty. So TD, this is your chance to talk positive trash about brands that you love. Who are you actually loyal to and why? In the currency of today, we do all this research, right? That tells you a bad experience with a brand takes about 10 good experiences to overcome. So avoid bad experiences at all costs, right? Good experiences are great, but if you have a bad experience, you get yourself into a lot of trouble. And what is a bad experience to me? And for, I think a lot of us lucky enough to live kind of in the United States and, and, and similar kind of countries is our, our, our scarcest resource is time, right? It's not money, it's time. And if someone wastes your time, it's where, when you go crazy, right? And how do you waste someone's time, right? You create experiences that are inefficient, that are not well thought through, and you just know as you're going through them, it just feels like the people on, that put all this together didn't give a shit. And usually what it is, right, is that lots of experiences have been cobbled together, but no one's taken a step back and looked at the thing holistically. And so you know, airlines to me are historically a main purveyor of this kind of problematic state of mind because you get a very different experience on the website, on the app, and on, you know, when you call customer service, which is often a very painful process. And then when you get to customer service, you're starting, it's like, they don't even know that you exist. They don't even know that you've been trying to change your flight. You're like, what the hell's going on here? I'm in hell right now. My flight's been canceled. I'm trying to get home to see my family. But I will tell you that some of the applications and approaches in the in airlines, and I'm gonna I'm gonna point out Delta specifically, I mean, they just have an app that is delightful, right? And it has these little delight moments. It's super fast, it's super performant. And, you know, it tells you, you get an alert when your bag got loaded on the plane. Like, it's just like those little things that someone thought about. And they're like, what, what are you stressed about as on a plane flying? 
And I can just tell you, look, when you watch people on a plane and they're looking out the window, everyone's looking to see, is my bag, is that, is my bag in there? Did I see my bag get loaded? Like the stress level is high. And if you just, you, you can alleviate it through technology if you really think through what the use cases are and what people care about. And so I think that's what it all comes back to. Do people feel super cared about? And there's others. I mean, my, you know, my wife got a car a couple of years ago, Volvo, and they just have this awesome app that you can use anywhere to unlock your car, see your car, it alerts you if you are a certain distance away for more than two minutes and your car is unlocked. And there's just like those little things that every, that obviously everyone Someone spent a lot of time thinking about what's going to delight the end user. And so I think same applies to both marketing and product, right? Like what can we do that's not going to waste people's time? And that's why hyper-personalization and these other things are so important. The hyper-personalization kind of thing that really drives me crazy right now, um, and I hope we're not doing it, is all these super targeted ads, display ads often, for things I just bought. (laughs) So I go on like first dibs and I bought like, this is a true example. I went on first dibs, which is a great site. Love it. Bought my brother a um, antique beer stein for his 50th birthday. That was two months ago. All over the internet for the last <laughs> two months, I get ads for beer steins. And I'm like, I bought the freaking beer stein. This is super annoying. I, I feel a little bit violated that this is following me around. But more importantly, like, is your text so bad that you you don't can't put two and two together that yeah. I already bought it? Or <laughs> even give money. the feedback of like, yeah. I already got this. Yeah. We're good to go here. On to the next thing. So it's time wasting that makes me insane. Oh, yeah. I mean, I love it as like a younger person. I think my search trends are totally different where if I need something like I need a dress to wear to a wedding, I'm going to search for it. And then I'm going to let the internet bring me options. But yeah, that point to be able to be like, nope, we're good here. This isn't a search that we need anymore. You don't need to keep raising new products to me. Super important. Awesome. Well, TD, thanks so much for giving us your time. I know there's a, uh, we're going to do a a version two with you as you've got some upcoming stuff. You should see what the ratings are on this one before you commit to that. (laughs) We'll start with one. Yeah, start with one. Don't make promises you can't, you can't keep Billy. Right. But I know we do want to come back and talk about voice technology and, and uh, really curious uh, some of your viewpoints on that and, and how it impacts some of these these time-based decisions and and how it can ultimately impact marketing as well. So I appreciate it and, and look forward to that future conversation. So th- thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Billy and Billy. Love you guys. <laughs>